This last week, this last week we heard a tremendous amount, and we heard it even again this morning, about Hurricane Sandy. There were a lot of articles that were put out. If you followed the news at all or if you saw anything in the newspaper, you saw that there were just hundreds, if not thousands, of articles that were out there that were listening. Uh, the devastation, it's actually determined that now there's something over $60 billion. I can't even fathom that kind of amount of uh, a problem that has happened and who pays the bill on that. They're calling this a devastation of epic proportions. And I found myself in preparation for what I've been given to speak about this morning and tying into this. I couldn't help but listen to many of the comments that were there, and I had to write down just a couple of them in preparation for today. There was a reporter in Munachi, uh, probably not saying it right, New Jersey, that was quoted as saying, no one expected this to ever happen here, something of this magnitude. No one, not one of us have ever seen anything like this here before. In Atlantic City, New Jersey, you probably heard, and because it seemed like they were pinning one against the other, but the governor, Chris Christie, made a comment after they had shown five to six feet of water over all of Atlantic City. He said, they did not heed my warning to get out and to go to higher ground. There was a reporter from the Weather Channel that was down in Snowshoe, West Virginia, where she was standing in two feet of snow that happened in a very brief time. And they said snow was forecast, but people didn't realize that it was going to be of this magnitude. This is a direct effect from something such as a rare event like this. Who would have thought a blizzard like this from a hurricane? And their last one that really got my attention, which I heard last night on the Weather Channel, is they were interviewing a number of families that stayed there. They were in that area of Atlantic City, and they were watching houses that had released themselves from the foundation and were slid into another house. And they interviewed one family, a gentleman by the name of Tom Owens, and this is exactly what he said, and I quote, with his two children in his hands, he said, I wished I had listened to the authorities and left. It was a warning that was given. The FEMA director, Craig Fugate, actually said, we are very much now in a response mode. And it's a time for action, a time for call for every one of us. This last Monday night at about 8.44 p.m., I was watching the news and to determine, because it's my call when it happens to come to the school here, as to whether or not we have school the next day. And we usually typically will watch the weather if it's snowstorms. But in the 14 years I've been here, I've never once watched for hurricanes. But we know that two hours earlier, it had hit landfall, and it was coming in, and we were getting phone calls like crazy that the hurricane was headed right for Erie. And based on what we saw from the devastation, I'm watching Facebook and I'm seeing students pray for school closure. And the reason they were praying for that is because something of absolute epic proportions had happened. For the first time that I know of since I've been here, and I had to confirm it with somebody else who was part of the Erie School District, Erie School District closed the night before. They were the first ones, followed by Mill Creek. So I, as superintendent of the school, called it at 8.44, and I watched as Facebook just went with all of a sudden all the kids all over the community saying, praise God, there is a God. <laughs> what they don't realize is they have to make up that day <laughs> later on. However, we woke up the next morning not to be in power outage, not to be in incredible rain, not to be intense wind and storm, to absolute silence. And in fact, if you recall, if you were here, it was almost eerie. <laughs> oh, it was. But you know what? As I came to, as I came to work, I, there's no other place in the world I can use that. <laughs> 
As I came to work that day, though, I happened to catch somebody that made the comment. They closed school for this? But do you know what the forecast was? And we heeded the warning. And what was most important wasn't the fact that whether or not we closed school for that, because it was. It was absolutely still. In fact, we thought we were in the eye of the storm. My mother calls me from down in Alabama and says, are you all right? And I said, am I all right? I'm seeing the sun shine. I'm looking around. It's clou- the clouds are gone. I mean, it's just a gorgeous day. And we just wondered. That night, I noticed on Tuesday evening, I noticed Rob Wilson on the news actually making a comment that I've never heard him say and showing the weather. And if you saw it, it was swirling all the way around Erie. And he said, I've never seen anything like this. It's like it hit all around us, but not here. Why? I don't know. But there were a number of us praying. That doesn't mean that others weren't. But let me tell you the one thing that was required from every single one of us this last week, and that was action. To do nothing was not an option. We had to do something, every one of us. And the action here in Erie was something that we stepped forward. You know, many people were faithful to the instructions that they were given that particular week. But however, not all were faithful and were saddened by some of what took place. The loss of life, it's over 100 now, and they're still finding many others, and that's really sad, and it's tragic, and it's awesome to see the way that the church is responding as well as others are in coming together. It's an opportunity for us to truly share the love of Christ. However, I also think it's a very strong warning of the brevity of life, how, how, how short it is. And it's also a wake-up call to, that we need to heed an authentic, credible warning when it's given to us and make preparations accordingly. Well, what am I talking about? Well, what I'm really talking about is sometimes we hold on to possessions so much so that we think that that's our life. I've put a quote in your handout today that comes from David Livingston, who was a Scottish missionary in the 19th century. And I love the way he puts it this way. He says, I place no value on anything I possess except in relationship to the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? It's an age-old question. We've been answering that now for 2,000 years. But in order to find that out, we should probably find out from the one who kept saying over and over again, but the kingdom of God is like, but the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. And we see that in a number of parables. In fact, Jesus told 38 parables. 17 of those parables had to do with possessions. And there's one of those that I really want to look at here today, and it's in the latter part of Matthew's gospel. Right about chapter 24 and 25 is what I'm going to zero in on today. And I want to talk to you about what the kingdom of God is like and heed the warning that you and I should probably pay special attention to and make preparations accordingly. His disciples are coming to him, and Jesus is talking about things that they know nothing of. They're not even sure. They've never seen anything like this before. So Jesus, tell us. When will we see all this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And when will be the end of the age? This last week, for some, they thought it was the end of the world. However, it's the parable of the talents that I want to zero in on this morning. And I want to expound on that, and it's something that we've all heard, but I'm not taking it for granted today. And as I was in in planning and preparation these last couple of weeks, I really thought to myself, do you know what? There's some parts of that parable that I don't fully understand. And I decided I was going to do a little bit digging, a little bit more digging, because I recognize that what happens to us so many times is that we read through Scripture in a modern-day translation, and I put my own cultural understanding to it, and sometimes it doesn't always make sense. And so you have to dig back a little ways and a little ways and a little ways, and so that's kind of what you pay us for to do. So I'm going to share that with you today, and I'd like to expound. But Jesus talked about a parable. What is a parable? I've heard that before. It comes from the Greek word parabole, meaning to put things side by side. 
It's, it's really taken the form, and it's in your notes there, of a saying, a proverb, a story, a simile, or even a metaphor intended to communicate truth by comparison. The interesting thing about parables is that they reveal life in the kingdom of God. And, and what was true back then in that cultural understanding we can apply to today, and, and many times parables have a number of spiritual tracks or significance that go with it. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you this story so that I can convey truth to the open-hearted, but confusion to the closed-minded. And so many times when somebody reads a parable, they say, I don't get it. I've run into people before that have said, I've read through the Bible hundreds of times. I've read through the whole New Testament, and I don't get it. And I say, did you read it with an open heart? Did you read it as though it was a letter from a person that's trying to communicate something to you? So let's look at that. It's in your notes in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, and starting in verse 14, and it reads like this. And I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, a little bit different than normal. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. Now let me stop there for just a minute. You see, this is a parable that's a warning to all believers. Jesus is speaking to what's going to happen with the believers and what's going to happen at a time when he probably does return. So it's a call to action as well as an accountability warning. And that's kind of a key there. He uses the word in this, as we see translated down, entrusted, which basically means stewardship. We've heard that term before. When we think stewardship, we immediately think, oh no, capital campaign, drive, money. Not necessarily. Listen to its definition. Stewardship means the supervising or managing of something. It's the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care, something that has been given to you. Therefore, somebody once said, and I quote, stewardship is, a, is what a man does after he says, I believe. You begin to find out. I love the quote that even Pastor Don said just a minute ago as we were taking the offering, in that how we give determines, it reveals what is in our heart and the love that we have for God. That word for, in the NIV, he starts off with the word again, and he's referring, he's throwing it back to chapter 24 where he says, so what's the kingdom of God like? Well, let me tell you, when is all this going to happen? He says a man's going away on a journey, and he defines it as he's going away on a long journey, which means he's going to be gone for a while, but we don't know exactly how long. He gives them a general time frame because so many of us, we demand a sign. We want to know exactly. Tell me exactly when this is going to happen, and I'll know exactly what to do. But we also see the inference when he says, again, he's going to go away and he's entrusting his property to these servants. He will return and they're going to have to give an account for what they were given. Well, what were they given? They were given something called a talent. Now, we in our English understanding today will say a talent is an ability I have. You've seen some ability that are up here. Some of us, you would not want to pick up that guitar and to try to play it or to sing. We don't have that talent. That's not the talent he's referring to. In this particular time frame, we say, well, maybe it's a coin. A particular, well, it, it was kind of, but it was more than just a coin because that word talent actually comes from a Greek term, once again, called talenton, which basically means a weight of measurement. And so where we get the word talent from is that it's a unit of measurement. Now, what are they measuring? Well, if, you've, if you know anything about currencies and if you've traveled anything abroad, you know that 
The dollar is not equal the same in every single country, and they all have something else they call it. And some of them are some pretty strange names. But in that particular place, a unit of measurement, a talent was something that weighed about 93 pounds, 12 ounces. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have too many talents in my pocket. Not at 100 pounds. Anyway. And what they likened it to, and the reason it's so hard for us to tell exactly what it was worth, is that the average wage of a worker in that particular time, and they got paid in silver, typically more so than gold, was a denarius. And a denarius, a coin, a silver coin, was usually um, actually a one day's worth of wage. Now, how much did a talent weigh? Since it weighed so much, it was the equivalent of about 6,000 denarii, or translating it, about 16 years of average age worker. That's what one talent is. So here's what, the, think of it this way. Jesus is telling this parable and he's using this huge term. He goes away and he gives one five talents. Now I don't know about you, but I'll do the math for you. It's $3.8 million. He hands the first servant $3.8 million. The second one he gives $1.5 million. And the last one he gives three quarters of a million dollars. 750000 or the equivalent of it. In other words, he got their attention. That would get my attention today, wouldn't it, you? That's what I thought. Especially if your boss came in and said, hey, I got something I want you to do, and he hands you money, and he doesn't tell you what to do with it. But he says, I'm going to go away for a little while, and when I come back, I want to know what you did with it. It's quite amazing. But keep in mind, this is a parable. So it's really not just about money. And in fact, the reason I think it's not about money is because that's exactly why Jesus used a term that was a very large sum. It was about their possessions. But keep in mind that this particular parable has a spiritual counterpart to it. And to that talents, every believer in Jesus were exceedingly rich when it comes to finances. In other words, we know that he owns everything. And if we'll but serve him and do what we need to, there's an endless supply of what he wants for us to do. Maybe not the funds themselves. That's another story. But I think there are a couple of clues, and I put a couple of them in your, in your notes there, that tell us exactly what was meant by those talents. The first one comes out of verse 14, and it's the last two words, and that is his property. Whose property? It's the master's property. It's God's property. God has taken some of his property, and he's giving it. Who's he giving it to? That we find in verse 15, the last two words in verse 15, and that is his ability. He gave them according to his ability. The servants. Now, this is interesting. He's dispersing the talents to the various, to the three different servants that are here based on their ability. That's how it's distributed. So, in other words, he knew that one could handle five, one could handle two, and the other one. But it's interesting what happens as a result. And I know sometimes we have a tendency to overanalyze, but I'm wanting to show you that spiritual line and to tie it together with where we're headed with this. The next two clues are not listed specifically, but I think they're inferred. And the first one is they were meant to invest the money. We see that by what happens a little bit later on. But they were told to take that and to do something with it, not just money, but the talent as a whole is who they are. The fourth clue is that they were to earn something for their master, for the absent Lord. It wasn't really theirs to keep. They were entrusted. They were a steward. It's kind of like we came into this world with how much? And we're going to go out of this world with nothing. Absolutely. Heard the story of a young man one time that uh, was growing up and he was a very wealthy man. And he said to his wife, I want you to do something for me. You've got to do this. When I die, I want you to take all my money and I want you to put it in my casket for me as I'm taking it with me. And she thought, you're crazy. You can't take it with you. He says, no, you've got to promise me you'll take it with, you'll put it in there. So sure enough, when he passed away, true to form, she took his money, 
She put it in the bank and she wrote a check and put it in there. (laughs) If he can cash that check. Now let me go on with my story. (laughs) It seems to me, according to Matthew 25 and the first couple of verses, that all believers are not equally blessed. Now what do I mean by that? We're all one in Christ spiritually. In fact, we find that out from Galatians 3.28. It actually says that Jew or Greek or Hebrew or slave were all equal in Christ. But we're not all blessed the same uh, materially. And so therefore, some of us have a little bit more physically. Others may have a little bit more materially. But we're not all equal. And if you, if you really notice, for instance, there are some that are born as kings and some that are born very poor. Some that are born male, some female. And in some times throughout culture, that had a big discrepancy and a difference. Some were born wealthy, some poor. Some were born with initiative and ambition, and some aren't. But we're not all, we don't all start at the exact same place. And I think in this parable, that doesn't matter. Because we're not all given the exact same opportunities or responsibilities. But... That's what we tend to compare ourselves to. Well, I want to work really hard to be in the same place that other people I've seen. I want to start off making lots of money and doing lots of things and having lots of stuff. And that's not what it's about. It's not about how much you have. It's more about what you do with what you have. You see, wherever we are in life and whatever we've been given, we have no excuse to be unprofitable. Absolutely none. No matter what our opportunities that we have had, we're all called to be responsible with exactly what we've been given. But here's the other interesting thing that I run into. I I, kind of wonder sometimes who the five talent people are and who the one talent people are. You you can't really tell by just looking at somebody. Do you have five talents? Do you have one? Are you two? We, We have a tendency to judge, but we really don't know. But you probably would agree with me that somebody like kids turn, they probably have five talents, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I, I think so. They, they, they've got quite a bit. And of course, they'll be held a lot. But somebody else that I know that really has five talents that I would think is the Reverend Billy Graham. Wouldn't you agree? And what's interesting to me is that here's an article that was, that was published out because he feels so strongly. The man is going to be 94 years old this coming Wednesday. And he's put this article out along with several others. And I just happened to hear a, a, a particular sermon yesterday from Dr. Jer- David Jeremiah who was a a part of an instrumental in raising the funds to put this out. They spent over a million dollars in putting this ad out to try to encourage Christians. They've determined that in the last election, four years ago, last presidential election, there were over 20 million evangelical Christians that did not vote. That's a sad state of affairs. And what Billy Graham is asking us is that we vote. He's not telling us how to vote, but he's saying vote based on biblical principles, folks. We need to remain to be a, a, a nation under God. And, and, and the fact that in the last 39 years, we have performed somewhere in the neighborhood of 52 million abortions. And he's saying we need to vote in favor of somebody who believes in the sanctity of life. And he's encouraging us to do that. But let me tell you something about that. Billy Graham may be a five-talent person, but do you know who Edward Kimball is? Edward Kimball was a lonely shoe salesman who taught Sunday school. Yeah, they had Sunday school back then. He taught Sunday school and had a relationship with a young man in his class called D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody went on, as you know, to become a great evangelist, started Moody Bible Institute, Moody Broadcasting, Moody Publishing, Moody Memorial Church, Moody Missionary Aviation, and so on. 
through D.L. Moody and his evangelistic services, he touched a man by the name of F.B. Meyer, who influenced J. Wilbur Chapman, who also was an evangelist, who was praying very strongly for an evangelistic-type ministry in the United States. They decided to hold a rally. They pulled in a young man who was a former clerk at the YMCA by the name of Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday held a crusade, and they were praying for days and days and weeks, I understand. And in that audience in North Carolina was a young man by the name of Mordecai Ham, who himself got saved and reached out and led Billy Graham to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Five times down. And you may say, I'm only a one-talent person. What can I do? Well, maybe you can do like Edward Kimball, and maybe you can teach a class. Maybe you can have an impact on somebody. Maybe you can get involved with helping put together some of the media stuff because we are such a media-driven society today. You may not be a Billy Graham. I'm not. I may not have those five talents, but what am I doing with what I've been given? You see, there's no limit to what we can do if we'll do exactly what he's told us to do. Verse 19, though, goes on to say that he will, after a long time, he will come back to those servants and settle accounts with them. He's going to settle up. We don't know exactly how long he was gone. We don't know exactly, you know, with those servants, what they, they weren't told exactly how to invest or what to do with it. We just know sort of part of that parable that Jesus is mentioning in the rest of the story. It says he gave them gifts, but they really weren't gifts. They were more loans. Well, what do you mean by that? In other words, what they were given, they were going to have to give back. And sometimes we, we call things like spiritual gifts, and we think of a gift, again, in our modern-day culture of if you give me a gift, I thank you for it. I may use it for a period of time. I may, it may be a gift that is a memento that I set on my shelf and I look at later that I may not do anything with. But imagine if I give you a gift, and someday I'm going to say to you, I'm going to come get that gift from you later, and I want to know what you did with it. That's a different story, isn't it, altogether? Well... Maybe that's part of the problem with us because the people that seem to have five talents or two talents or many of those, they're not afraid to step out and risk theirs. They're not afraid to try big things for God, but sometimes those of us that think we don't have any. I've taught the shape class a number of times, which really has to do with discovering your spiritual gifts and, and the number of things that go with that. And, and every so often I run into somebody that's taking the class saying, I, I, I just don't have any abilities. There's nothing I can do. And I have to say to them, no, there is something you can do. You just need to discover what that is and find out. Because you see, when we love God and when we recognize how much he loved us and what he's given to us, it causes us. It's a natural inclination when I feel love from somebody to do something in return as a love back. And that's what the meaning of this parable is. Now, let's get to the three servants real quick. And let me touch on those. Starting in verse 20. We see the five-talent servant, and it says this, And so he who had received five talents came and brought the other five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. What does the first one receive? Accommodation. An absolutely a glowing commendation. The verbal report, a praise, a job well done, good job, pat on the back. Psychologists will tell us, to us as parents as well as teachers, that you know a verbal word of praise and affirmation to a young child carries more weight than some kind of a gift or other kind of recognition. There is something about being able to just feel, well done, 
Really? You really think so? Absolutely. You know, it's, it, it's amazing whenever, we, uh, when, whenever we're told that and we've done something, and, and especially if it's been something that we've really worked hard at and we've tried to do our best, for somebody to come along and say, wow, good job, well done, I appreciate what you've done, it, it goes a long way. Let me illustrate it this way. You, you know, Christmas is almost here. It's 51 days. I don't know if you're counting. But uh, in, until, <laughs> for those of you that need to go shopping, don't leave right now, okay? You can go a little bit later. 51 days, and, and, and I can remember, my kids are older now, and my youngest is sitting down there, and she's old, a lot older, and I won't use her name because I have to give her money, but anyway, I can remember when the kids were growing up, and Christmas time came around, and, and mom would basically do the shopping because she loves to shop, and dad hates it, okay? So what happens in that is that she would go out and get what the kids really need, and we would hear some of the things that they want. And because we've had five kids or seven in our family, and we have this little tradition that what we do is we don't do, and if you do this, uh, please, I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm just saying in our household, I really felt that I saw an awful lot of uh, pride and selfishness and such. And my sister will take with her family, and they just open everything all at once. And 30 seconds later, it's all done. In my household, we open one at a time. And you don't open the next one until the trash is put in the trash. Okay? (laughs) So you can imagine how long it takes, so much so that my mother says she won't come for Christmas anymore. She thinks we buy too many presents. And I said, all we've done is everybody's bought one gift for everybody else. Well, seven times seven, that's 49. And of course, you know, Celeste gives them clothes and stuff like that that goes with it. So nevertheless, but remember when the kids were younger, you probably remember this, the kids wanted to get you something as a parent. And what did you do? You gave them the money. Or sometimes you went and bought the gift, they wrapped it up, and you come in Christmas and you say, oh, look, it's from... Mm. I can't say the name, okay? And so it's from the kid, and you open it up, and you go, oh, it's just what I always wanted. I gave it to myself. That's what God's doing. God's giving out the talents, and he says, what did you do with them? You see what I mean? And he's saying, I'm giving an account, and I want to come back, and I want to find out what happened with what I gave you. It pleases his heart so much when he sees that that's exactly what we've done. And in this particular parable, God gave huge gifts. He's trying to explain that it wasn't about the money. It was about far more than that. He was saying, what are you responsible for? Because if, you're, if you become faithful in the small things, I'll put you in the large things. Because you see what happened with this first one. He not only got the commendation, but we find from Scripture, he got a promotion, and it also said... Now enter into the joy of the Lord. There's something about when you do a job, how exciting it is that you feel the joy that you accomplish something. And that comes as a result of doing that as well. So those are the three things he, he learned. Now let's see what this two-talent one did. And also, he who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's the exact same thing. The one with five and the one with two received the exact same reward. Oh, then maybe it wasn't about the money. You see, the second one received accommodation also. There's great encouragement and comfort here. Let me tell you why. Because somebody like Kids Turner, somebody like Billy Graham, or somebody that else who, who we look at as, as being a five-talent person, and I'm only a, a two-talent or maybe even a one in this story. You don't want to be a one. But if, if you are a one and all you've got is that, but you've been faithful with it and you've done exactly what you're supposed to be doing, I could get the same reward as a Billy Graham or as anybody else. I could get the well done 
good and faithful servant. And I can get that story, that's, get the, the, the praise that says, come on in, enter into the joy of the Lord. Every one of us can, if we're faithful. That's the key that's here. So you see, it's kind of an amazing to me that it's, it's just absolutely the same courage. Now let's look at the one talent in verse 24. And then he who had received one talent said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you, what you, ha you have what is yours. But his Lord answered him and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I've not sown and gathered where I've not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have at least received it back with my own interest." Now, this is the part that always confused me because I was trying to figure out what in the world did this mean? It's a parable. What is the spiritual counterpart? Well, let me tell you, the man was afraid. We knew that from the beginning. It's highlighted. It's bold there. He was afraid of losing what he had been given. So what's he do with it? He buries it. In this particular culture at this particular time, if somebody lends you money, if you put it in your, we didn't have wallets back then. They didn't have duct tape to try to put it together and put it in your pocket. Okay? But if you were to take it and put it in a cloth, wrap it up and put it inside your cloak, you were still responsible for that money. But if you took that money in that culture and you went and buried it and something happened to it, you are released from the liability. That's why in this case, the servant, this servant that only has one says, I'm not going to do anything with it. What if I lose it? What? I'm afraid. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. So he goes and buries it thinking he's released from the liability. But in that particular culture, the master comes back and says, no, you weren't released from it. You're absolutely held accountable for that very thing. And so, you see, by him being afraid, he was afraid of failure. He was afraid that it wouldn't work. But if you really look at the story, you recognize that it wasn't about the success as much as it was about the responsibility and being found faithful. Being afraid also means not willing to risk. He says, I know you were a hard man. Now, here's what's interesting. The perception. Do you think the perception was different between these three servants of who the master was? Sure, the first two went to work at once. Now, you may say, oh, yeah, well, they were probably a type A personality, and they were probably out there go-getters and doing it. Not necessarily. The gifts were distributed based on their ability. But the third one, he's testing as well, has the same opportunity. The master believed in him just as well. But in this case, the servant says, I perceived you to be a hard man. And it's kind of like I've heard sometimes, not around here, but I used to work in a secular world, and I understand that. Sometimes standing around the work cooler, they say, you know, hear people say, can you believe the boss? I mean, he wants me to do this. He has no clue. He just wants us to do everything. He gets the credit for it. That's all there is to it. I know you to be a hard man. If you ask me to do something, forget it. I'm not doing it. I'm going to do my own thing anyway. Sometimes that happens, and it creeps into exactly where we're at. And what, what we've got to do is remember, I've got to be willing to take the risk. So this particular servant receives condemnation. He doesn't get the accommodation that the first two get. He gets condemned because he's told, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew. In other words, your perception, your understanding was that I was a hard man. So what? Get over it. Move on. It's all about being. He said you should have deposited. Now, what is that supposed to mean? Our banks today pay lots of interest, right? That's what I thought. In other words, it's kind of the safest way to go. What he's saying is you should have at least taken and taken my money, deposited at the bank, and got your half a percent interest. At least then when I came back, however long that was, I would have gotten something out of it. Okay, well, how does that relate to us in our spiritual counterpart? Because, you know, 
the, the money thing? Well, here's what it really means. You should have at least deposited. It means you should have taken your money and invested it in a place where it would have gained some interest, meaning I can have somebody else do all the risk. I come alongside a ministry that's already moving, something that's already going. You may not be the one who will start it, who is out there pioneering it, but you can certainly come along. You've seen over the last six or eight weeks, you've seen spotlights that have been up on the screens over and over again, given us opportunity, even this morning. Areas where you can deposit the talent that you've been given by coming alongside. You heard Jason Bennett actually say, I, saw, I heard him just a couple minutes ago say, not a one of those volunteers has a degree or, or the expertise in that area. They have the willingness and, they're, and they're, they're willing to deposit it. That's exactly what they're doing. Am I saying that's a lowly position? Absolutely not. But what Jesus is saying is, do something. To do nothing is what's wrong. Now, you may be the kind of person that says, hey, I can go build a house. Or maybe I can't build a house, but you can pound a nail or you can remove some lumber, or you can cook a meal, or you can do something. I mean, the fact of the matter is we have a lot of opportunities. Servere comes out once a quarter. We're able to do, oh, but I'm kind of busy. Then make room. People could use you. That's exactly what it comes down to. There's all kinds of other volunteers, whether it's the nursery, whether it's greeters, whether it's whatever. There's no excuse in a church in this size that we should ever have to really ask for volunteers. There should be an endless supply. That's what he's kind of telling us. Well, what happens to this particular servant? In verse 28, we find out he doesn't get promoted. He's demoted. And we see exactly what happens, the judgment that takes place. In verse 28, it says, So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But to, for him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Now, and, and it goes on, And cast that unprofitable servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here is the summarizing of the entire lesson. If you've been asleep on me now, wake up, because now's the time, all right? I want you to hear this, if you will, because the parable of the talents, when you hear that, some of you, I know, I, I've done this. I've heard other people teach on it. Sometimes you just kind of go, oh, yeah, I heard this one. But do we have the ears to hear? Are we open-hearted enough to be able to hear what maybe the Spirit would say today to us for right now with where we're at? I'm not saying we're all wicked and lazy. You have to judge that. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But what I'm saying is the reward that you and I will receive when the master returns is based upon not how successful we were, but how faithful we have been. That's all it comes down to. And sometimes we become so faithful that maybe we don't see the success and we kind of wonder and we pull back. And interesting here what he says is that honestly, if you're going to take it from the one and give it to the other one, you know there's a principle that we use for that in life and it's called Use it or lose it. It happens with all of us. If you don't use it, you will lose it, and it will be given to one who has an abundance. Why? Because they were faithful, and that was it. Why did he give it to the one who had ten talents? I have no clue. It's a parable for crying out loud. It's just a story. <laughs> we're not analyzing it that specifically. But let me go on. Look at what he does in verse 30. If that's not enough, not only is he demoted, it says, and he will be cast the unprofitable servant will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He will go to the balcony that is dark and has been closed off because the ceiling is falling. No, what that really means, that outer darkness, and if you're like me, sometimes I thought, well, wait a minute, he's talking to servants here, and now all of a sudden, I thought we got saved by accepting Jesus. And now all of a sudden, if we've not been faithful, we're going to be cast out. 
Well, again, sometimes we have to do a little digging in order to find out. The terminology that he's using at that particular point, as far as the outer darkness referred to, Jesus uses this same term three different times throughout the book of Matthew. And the term that's used there, the outer darkness, has to do with when they got together for a wedding banquet. All weddings were done at night, and they were done by candlelight. And if you showed up at the wedding and you weren't dressed right, guess what happened to you? You were thrown into outer darkness. Didn't mean you were thrown out of the wedding festival. It meant you were thrown outside and couldn't stay into the main festivities. Everybody understood that culturally. But, it's, but he goes on to say, but it'll be in a place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Doesn't that sound like hell to me? It does if we try to pin it together with that. But you've got to remember, he's talking to those that are saved, that when Jesus comes back, basically it's the responsibility that we're going to have after he comes back and how we're going to rule and reign with him. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I just get saved, and, and what do I do till Jesus comes? Uh, study. Prepare for your finals. Read the Bible. It works. Because we're going to have some responsibilities a little bit later on. Really? Yes. Heed the warning. That's what this is all about. And so what he's saying is we need to realize, but that weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth had to do with, in this culture, even when somebody died, if you didn't have a lot of family members come and, and, and wail, they hired mourners to come and just stand there and wail as though they knew the person. I mean, I can't, our culture doesn't understand that. That's all he's referring to here, is that they're not cast out of the kingdom. They're still within the kingdom, but they're cast out. And you know what happens? They don't sense the joy, which kind of made me think about this, that if I'm not using my talent properly, and if I'm not exercising it, and I'm not faithful, I'm probably not a happy person. And I got to thinking of all the years that I've served in churches and I've looked around and I realized the only people that complain are those that aren't doing anything. Because, you know, you can't really complain when you're rowing the boat. As you're, as you're involved with ministry, you're just saying, hey, here's what we can do. Let's make it a little better. And maybe it's only one talent. Maybe it's two. Maybe it's more than that. But you see, that sense of joy not only comes in here, but that sense of joy comes when we know that every one of us will hear that well done. Now, if you don't take my word from that, Paul wrote it in Romans, and I put it in your notes as well. Romans 14, verse 12 says, So then, each of us will have to give an account to himself. Now, I'm not going to be held up accountability against somebody else. Thank the Lord. Pastor Don, he's far more spiritual than me. I'm not going to stand there, and God's not going to say, How did you compare to Pastor Don? He's going to basically compare me to what he gave me to do. And I am going to be held responsible for that, and so are you, every one of us. You've been given the, but I didn't think that would happen. It's going to happen. It's listed there. Now, let me tell you a modern-day parable as I'm beginning to wrap this up and giving you three areas that we need to do that. An old executive, an old businessman has, has had a very successful company, and he's about to retire. And in normal cases, usually they would uh, determine a successor for the business. And instead of picking just one of the directors who's already been doing some of that or one of his kids, he decides to do something different. He pulls in all his young, young executives and he says, it's time for me to step down, and I'm going to choose a new CEO. So I've decided to choose one of you in this room today. The young, the young executives were absolutely shocked. He says, today I'm going to give you a seed, a very special seed. I want you to take this seed, and I want you to plant it. I want you to water it, and I want you to come back here one year from today, and I want you to share exactly what you have grown. From then, on that particular day, I will look at all the plants, and I will determine which one is the new CEO? Well, there was a young man in that room by the name of Jim. 
Jim, just like the others, took his seat home, shared it with his wife. He was so excited that he had a shot at possibly being the new CEO. So they bought a pot, bought some compost, put it in there, fertilized it, watered it. A couple of weeks went by, and of course, you know, nothing's going to happen yet. But about three weeks into it, he hears some of the other young executives talking about how their plants are starting to break through the soil. And he's wondering what's happening. Well, he goes, keeps going on. Four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, three months, nothing, absolutely nothing. Now he's embarrassed as all get out. And he finally says to his wife, I, I don't know, this, this just isn't working. I, I feel like I've got an empty pot. There's no way I can take that back. And she says, you've got to do exactly what you've been told to do. So the year comes by. Everybody's got plants but Jim. They come into the boardroom. They all set him down. As Jim sets his down, some of the executives laugh at him. Some even feel sorry for him. But when the CEO arrived, he surveyed the room, and he greeted his young executives. And he said, my, what great plants that we've got here and trees that have grown. Today, one of you will be appointed the next CEO. And all of a sudden, the CEO spotted Jim in the back of the room, trying to hide, obviously. But he asked the financial director to bring him up to the front. And he had him stand there. And he said, tell me about what happened. So Jim begins to tell his story, exactly what happened. And in the midst of that, he has everybody else sit down. Jim says, I, I watered it. I planted it. I don't know what happened. I feel so embarrassed. He's afraid he's going to get fired. But the CEO has everybody sit down, and he says, I want to introduce to you your new CEO. His name is Jim. Now everybody's shocked. They're wondering what's going on. You told us to plant a seed. We all did that. Ours grew. His didn't. I don't get it. Was there something to this? The CEO goes on to explain this. One year ago today, I gave everyone in this room a seed. I told you to take that seed, plant it, and water it, and bring it back to me today. But I gave you all boiled seeds. They were dead. It was not possible for them to grow. All of you except Jim have brought me trees and plants and flowers. When you found the seed that would not grow, you substituted another seed for the one that I gave you. Jim was the only one with the courage, the honesty to bring me the pot with my seed in it. Therefore, he is the one that will be your new chief executive officer. You see, it wasn't about success. It's about faithfulness. Sometimes we look at it and say, but I don't want to do that ministry because I don't see any fruit. It's not successful. That's not the point. The point is, what are you gifted and talented to do? And what has God called you to do? So it's not about that. The parable is really not about money. It's not about our possessions. It's about trust. Do we really trust God? Because the worst thing that could happen to you and I in life is to be believers and to live our life and to stand before God at the judgment seat, and it will happen, and for him to say, what did you do? And I risk nothing. Well, the time for action is now. If we don't do anything, we've taken our talents and we've buried them. That's not wise stewardship. But if at least we try... And even if we fail, I often wonder, part of this parable, what would have happened had the first two risked it and lost everything? We don't know. The story doesn't tell us that, but it wasn't about that. It was a parable, and Jesus said it came alongside. So here's my challenge to you this morning, and that is, I put it in a form of a question, and I made it a little longer on purpose, and that's why I wrote it down. What do we have which is God's peculiar property? that comes to us on the basis of natural ability, requiring a risk on our part, and that that risk appears to benefit only the Lord and not ourselves. Let me suggest you have three things, and they're very quick. That's why I left them to the last. 
The first one is your finances. If you're not tithing, you're not a steward. That's all there is to it. I don't know how else to say it any other way. The offerings come above and beyond. What we're given next week is an offering. It's an opportunity for us to really give. But what has God given you in terms of treasury, and what are you doing with it? It's not a guilt trip. It's not, a, it's not meant for that at all. I'm just telling you. It's very clear. If you get into the Word of God, it explains that we need to be wise stewards. I wrote it down just as Don was saying. What I do with what I have reveals my love for God. That's all it is. It's a declaration. God doesn't need your money. It's like He gave you the gift, and you turn around and you give it back to Him. But we need to give it because it's what declares and what releases him to be able to do it. Second thing is both our natural and our spiritual gifts. Yeah, but Pastor John, I don't know what my gifts are. Well, then find out. I'm going to tell you, many people have taken my shape class. And the last quarter, and I realize Sunday school is a thing of the past. I understand that, okay? And, And I've offered that. And the last time I offered the shape class, I went upstairs and I had nobody. That's okay. I guess that means everybody knows their gifts. My challenge to you, and it always has always been, people that know me know exactly. I am all about, do you know what your motivational gift is? Do you know what your ministry gift is? Do you know your personality? Do you know the natural abilities that God has given you? What do you have a passion for? And what in the world are the experiences that you've gone through? And frankly, God says, don't complain. Get busy and do something with it. You have that peculiar God's property. And he's not asking you to go be a Billy Graham. He's asking you to do whatever it is he wants you to do. And that's my challenge to all of us, and I feel the same way. And the last one you may not have thought of, and that is the Scriptures. Two interesting things, and I probably should have included them in your notes. You might want to write them down over there. But Matthew chapter 24, verse 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word, the word of God, will never pass away. Tie that also to Isaiah 48 that says, The grass withers, withers and the flowers fall away, but my word, the word of God, stands forever. You know what I think God's going to do to us? I think the other thing he's going to say to us is, because we live in a culture nowadays to where affluence is one of the things that happens before apathy sets in in a country, before we eventually go back into bondage. And we're there. If you study you know, history and you, you know the cultures, you understand that we've gone through that. And after bondage, then we cry out to God, and then he comes back. And I don't want us to get there. So what's happened to us is we happen to be a society right now that is, is so, we have such a plethora. I don't know how many Bibles you have at home, but I have a bunch And I'm thinking, if suddenly, all of a sudden, we had no printed Word of God and our cell phones stopped, (laughs) we didn't have version or whatever it was, how much Word of God have we memorized that we would know? I really think, I really do think that we're going to have to be a steward of what we've been entrusted. That's also why in every class I've ever taught, I've required a memory verse. Why? Because we give memory verses to the kids when they're young and we give them a star We affirm them, but when we become adults, when we need it the most, what do we give them? Nothing. So there are three things that I think we're held accountable for. Our finances, the gifts that we've been given, and the Word of God. Now, for the past seven weeks, we've been told how to activate our faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been told that we are empowered, we have a vision, we have skills, we have influence, we're called, we're courageous, and last week, Pastor Jason told us it's time for action, that we need to do something. And I speak, I'm telling you, just as I point one, I got three coming back at me. So the very message that I'm speaking, I thought, man, you know, one of, the, one of the most scariest things is to do all this and prepare this message and something to happen like a revival broke out because kids turned lettuce and something. And Pastor Jack said, no, you're not preaching today instead of the countdown, all right? <laughs> but you know what? If that was the case, then I would say, Lord, that's for me because I need to examine my own life. 
and make sure that in all areas of my life that I am being a wise steward of what I've been entrusted. Do we fail? We all do. We all have issues. This is life. Life happens. But I'm telling you, we have been asked by Pastor Jack for the last several months to truly say, Lord, I'm available. And we have stories in that. And I'm telling you, whatever it is you look for, you're going to find it. So if you truly say, I used to years ago pray for divine appointments. When I worked for the oil company, and I shared that a couple of weeks ago when I was here, and I told you that, I would go to work and I would say, Lord, show me. I would say, I'm available. Show me divine appointments that I can touch somebody else's heart with. Maybe it's just the Word of God. Maybe it's a scripture verse. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. Our own general superintendent, George Wood, and I've told the story before, but for some of you that haven't heard it, is that his parents were missionaries to Tibet for 10 furloughs, 40 years. During that time, they saw two converts. Now, I don't know about you. I'm an administrator. And if I get two converts inside of 40 years, that's like the fig tree that didn't produce. I'm locking it off. I'm not going back. But after they retired, Dr. Wood actually says that his parents had a chance to go back and visit those two converts. And those two converts have literally led thousands upon thousands of Chinese to Christ. They were faithful. Were they successful? It doesn't matter. Were they faithful? So my challenge to us this morning is, let's live our lives in such a way that we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Will you stand with me? Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to stand before these people today and to declare your word. I pray, Lord, that more than anything else, that you would help us all to take exactly what we've heard this morning and that we would be held accountable for it and that you would guide us, direct us, your Holy Spirit would affirm us and that you would help us to be found faithful to what talents that you have entrusted to each of us. And I thank you for this. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.